Micah. Chapter 6 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. I refrain from praying for those that are backslidden at home, um, watching whatever game might be on, and I'm, I'm uh, speaking solely of Ram fans. Uh, by the way, this evening, somebody walked through the courtyard or the fellowship hall here yes, this morning, and before they left, they said, "Go Rams!" And I had to call security. It got very ugly, and um, so. But he brought it upon himself. I have really no, no regret at all. When we come here now to uh, chapter six, the we remember as we've studied it two times previously in the book of Micah that it's made up of three uh, individual sermons. And we've looked at the first two sermons, and all three of them are kind of identical in which uh, the prophet Micah is uh, confronting uh, both the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel over their sin and the sin that had uh, become entrenched in uh, uh, supremely within their capitals, in the capital city of Jerusalem for the south and the capital city of Samaria up in the north. And they had become uh, as centers of, uh, of um, the uh, political centers, as being religious centers at that time. All of these leaders, whether they be kings or priests or prophets, they had become corrupted. And then as the leadership went, the people then followed them in that until the entire land was, was corrupted. When Micah prophesies, he prophesies about 20 years before the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel to the Assyrians, an utter destruction that would come into the land. And, and as he prophesies to Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah, that would follow a hundred years later. So he lets the northern kingdom of Israel uh, know that they need to repent, judgment is coming. Uh, 20 years before it happens, the southern kingdom, 120 years before it happens. You cannot say that God, as we see Him in, in the Bible all the way through, that He doesn't warn. I mean, He warns and He warns and He warns and He warns and He warns. And, uh, and when His judgment finally falls, or His chastening, even upon our lives, uh, all of us can look back and say, well, uh, you've been talking to me about this for a long time and I haven't been listening, have I? And I've never known him to surprise me with his chastening. He's always careful uh, to warn. Now, in this chapters, this second uh, division, chapters 1 and 2 constituting the first sermon, chapters 3, 4, 5, the second sermon, in chapters uh, 4 and 5, uh, we remember just for a moment that here in those chapters God speaks of, He can never speak about judgment except that He seems to want to infuse hope among God's people. The judgment would come, but like all chastening in the, in the lives of God's people, it doesn't end there. It always moves on to 
uh, a, 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 a bright future and a bright hope. And so he reminds them of, of a kingdom that he's going to establish as he did in chapter 4. And uh, speaking of, uh, of the kingdom that Christ will establish, Jesus will establish. And then also spoke in chapter 5 uh, prophecies, some of the most beautiful prophecies in the whole Old Testament that speak to Jesus as the Messiah. And so we pick things up here now in chapter 6 where this message of judgment and, uh, 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 comes, becomes the theme of the third and final uh, sermon or message that he gave to Micah. So the Lord speaks uh, to uh, his people and says, Hear now what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Uh, hear, O you mountains, uh, the Lord's complaint and your strong foundations, uh, you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people and he will contend with Israel. So it's a picture that we see frequently kind of verbally drawn in, in the prophetic books where God calls his people, his guilty people, into a courtroom scene and uh, in which they are the defendants, he is the prosecuting uh, attorney, and he calls here on creation to then uh, listen to the back and forth in this trial and, uh, and determine who is righteous in this great division that has occurred between God and his people. And God begins this case that he lays against his people before the creation, and he says, O oh, my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. It, it is a really, really remarkable. He speaks to them and he says, Now, tell me in just one way that I have been unfaithful to you and my covenant to you. Unfaithful in any way in this relationship between you and me. And he, and he opens up the whole floor of, uh, of the courtroom now for them to bring charges against God. To say, God, the reason that we're apostates, the reason that we are, are backslidden is you failed to do this and this and this and you didn't keep this promise in Deuteronomy and you didn't keep this promise in Leviticus. And he, and he opens it, the entire floor up then for their bring their accusations for their rejection of Him and their, uh, and their falling away uh, uh, from Him. Some, uh, how have I wearied you, testify, what have I done to you, how have I ever been less than uh, faithful uh, to you? Now, uh, the response is silence. It reminds me in the New Testament when Jesus spoke to the Jewish religious leaders and he said, which of you convicts me of sin? Silence. They couldn't break the silence. There was no sin that they could charge him with. And he said, then he was the only one that could break the silence and he did by saying, and if I tell you the truth, why won't you listen to the things that I say? So God calls upon His people to bring a charge against Him for their backslidden condition as a justification for it, and there's complete silence. If He were to do that in this room, uh, the, the same response would be silence. 
I cannot in walking with him since 1980. I cannot tell you. I'm not trying to protect his reputation. I'm not trying to give anybody a false report concerning him. But I have never known him to be unfaithful to his promises, not one time in my life. If I were to backslide, I could not throw a failure of his back into his face as a justification for it. He has been completely faithful. Now, there have been times where he has done things very differently than I wanted him to. And uh, so at the moment, it could look like a failure. But whenever it looked like, uh, in my mind, I, I thought he had maybe failed something of a promise in his word. It was not that he failed in a promise, but he failed in an unbiblical expectation that I brought to my relationship with God. And then when God continued in his work, or whatever the situation might be, however hard it might be, when he got done being faithful in that situation, then we find out that what he had in mind was way better than anything that we had in mind. Now we stop and we think about that as his children tonight. I mean, think about having a God who is utterly faithful. He fills the Bible with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of promises. And he keeps every single one of them. And now the problem with a backslider among God's people, both then and today, is there is no justification for walking away from him in a covenant relationship with him because of some failure on his part. And so since they can't break the silence, testify against me. Charge me with something. And their silence, he then uh, breaks that silence and he begins to recite to them uh, his long history of faithfulness and grace and mercy to them. He said, for I brought you uh, up from the land of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of bondage. I redeemed you from uh, slavery, a picture of our salvation. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. When you, when you wandered for those 40 years in the wilderness, I supplied you with godly leadership. And oh, my people, remember how now what Balak, king of Moab, uh, counseled and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from the acacia grove to Gilgal. And we remember when uh, Bala, uh, Balak, the king Balak of Moab, he hired Balaam to come and curse the children of Israel and try as Balaam might, all that came out of his mouth was the pronouncement of blessing upon the children of Israel as they were making their way to the promised land. And so God is just saying from this cross-section of their history, he could, have, he could, have, he could fill two Bibles with, with examples of his faithfulness, but he just takes this cross-section and says, you know, basically uh, from saving you and then from moving you then into sanctification, protecting you in your Christian life, I have taken care of you. And, 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 and so he had. And, and here was the purpose of this history lesson, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord, that I've only been righteous to you, I've only been good to you, I've only uh, been uh, faithful to you. I am innocent of any accusation that you might uh, bring against me in terms of 
uh, a failure on my part related to the relationship. And then here in uh, uh, verse 6, Micah then voiced what would have been uh, the appropriate response on the part of, of the children of Israel, the questions that they should have posed uh, as a result of being confronted uh, in this way. And what they ought to have said to God, as Micah phrases it for them, is what, with what shall I come before the Lord? Uh, you know, the acknowledgement, I'm in sin, I'm on the wrong path, uh, he's been right and we've been wrong, and so how can I approach God when I have failed Him in this relationship so badly and bow myself before uh, the, the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, uh, with calves a year uh, old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams offered as sacrifices to the Lord for sin, or 10,000 rivers of oil? Uh, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, which of course was forbidden uh, in the Scriptures, but here represents the, the ultimate kind of sacrifices. They're uh, thinking out loud here, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. And so they should have asked, how in the world do we make this right with God in light of the fact that we are the unfaithful ones in this relationship? You notice the, the interesting thing about Everything that they kind of come up with as a solution to their problem, it's all external. It's all something that they can offer from the outside. Uh, some animal from their flock or some oil or whatever it might be. It, it is something that they could offer to God in a uh, religious ritual, but never change as individuals, never turn uh, from their sin. And, and so this is, this is what they're offering. What, what stuff can we offer God to make this thing right? But I don't want to change who I am and, and my engagement in sin in order to make this right. And then God's response to all of this, the correct answer uh, to uh, uh, this uh, wanting to know how can I make things right with God and, uh, and Micah declares on behalf of the Lord, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. It is important to notice that phrase, those first four words of verse 8, He has shown you. Sometimes people will look at verse 8, and it's a beautiful verse, and they'll look at it and say, this is how a person is saved, by doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God. And that's not what's being talked about. God is speaking to a group of people who are already in covenant relationship with Him. They are already saved, so to speak. And they are not conducting themselves within that relationship the way that they ought. So what we have here is not the means by which we get saved, but the means by which we nurture a healthy relationship uh, with God. And they already knew all these things. As we went through the earlier chapters, we'll go through a little bit more when we get into uh, later in, in verse, uh, chapter 6 and verse 7. All of these sins that they were committing were violations of the law of Moses. God had told them, walk on this path 
and it's blessed. Walk on this path, and you'll be cursed on it because uh, the path is cursed of disobedience to, uh, to me. And, uh, and so they knew better. They were different than the rest of the nations around them. In the same way, a backslidden Christian is very different from someone who is unsaved in the world and doesn't know any better. They've never been exposed to uh, the Bible or to Christianity. So they knew better, and the Lord said, uh, 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 what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I know, I've known a number of people through the years who have uh, either felt, they have made this kind of their life verse. And a life verse is a, a verse that a Christian uh, believes God has given to them specifically to be a dominant influence uh, in their life, or one they look at and say, I claim that verse, uh, uh, you know, uh, amongst all of the verses of the Bible, and, and I want this to characterize and, and to mark my life. And this call to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God wanted. To do justly is simply God was calling on them to just obey my word. Just do the right thing in every situation in your life. You have the word, uh, do justly in every situation in your life. And then second, to uh, love mercy. In your relationship with other people, remember the kings and the priests and the prophets, they were taking advantage of the poor, they were gouging the poor, they were using their power to loot other people. These are God's people. Loot other people of their land and so forth. They had completely forgotten about mercy and their dealings with their fellow human beings. And so he said uh, to love mercy. When you're dealing with somebody in a situation, what's the merciful thing to do? And then do that. And then to walk humbly with your God. The first two things, doing justly, loving mercy, that has to do supremely with our fellow man. And then he talks here about uh, what is to mark our relationship with, uh, with God uh, supremely in, in, in terms of between us and Him, and that is to walk humbly with your God, and to walk in humility uh, before God, and then to walk in humility with, with our, our fellow man. So the solution, you look at their, you look at the mess they're in. Judgment is going to come from the Assyrians. Judgment is going to come from the Babylonians. They are, they are years and decades and decades and decades entrenched in sin. And, and sin has become so systemic within the culture. It looks like there's no way out of it. There's no solution to the moral and spiritual problems of the northern and southern kingdom. And God comes in and says, yes, there is. And it's not complicated. It's not like the Pythagorean theorem. All you have to do is do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And all of these things will fall into place. You can hardly find a better little trio uh, to make something that we have uh, mark our lives in any situation or relationship within our life. That we come to it and we say, what is the just thing to do here? What is the right thing to do here on the basis of God's Word? And then to do it. And then to ask of that same situation, 
what would be the merciful thing to do here in this situation and how I will treat the person that's also involved in this situation and to choose the merciful thing. I have very rarely regretted choosing grace or mercy in a situation over bringing down the hammer. Uh, it's grace and mercy that we can live with over the long haul in, in our relationships with people and in our decision-making. It holds up way better than judgment uh, does. And so we look at it and we say, what's the right thing to do here? What will characterize mercy in this situation? And then what will, uh, what will look like humility in my life? Uh, putting the other person first. What will, uh, in this situation, I want to humble myself before God. I want to humble myself in my dealing with this situation and this person. And what would humility do here? And you put those three things together and it, they will inevitably lead to a decision or a series of actions for which there will be no regret in, in moving forward. It is a beautiful, uh, beautiful snapshot of the things that we run into in life and say, okay, what would be the just thing? What would be the merciful thing? And what would represent humility? You'll almost never go wrong uh, running it through that, that grid of three. And then uh, the Lord brings uh, more charges uh, uh, to... Uh, 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 continue in, in, in terms of their sin. The Lord's voice cries to the city, speaking of Jerusalem, uh, wisdom shall see your name. God says, hear the rod, and who has appointed it? Uh, uh, are there yet treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? So he, he says, hear the rod. A rod was an instrument of, uh, of judgment, so to speak, in, among a shepherd. And so God is speaking about the fact that He is coming to judge them. I remember when I was a relatively new Christian, some of you might remember it, on Christian television at that time, uh, there was a ministry that was called Hear the Rod Ministries. Oh man, that guy could hammer you from up one side and down the other. I mean, it was his place now to just bring God's judgment on. It wasn't on very long. Uh, and so the Lord is rebuking them for the fact that the, the treasures of wickedness are in the house of the wicked. Things have become so wicked that it wasn't that the wicked uh, 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 had a little bit that they had gained, you know, illicitly in terms of taking advantage of people, uh, but their houses became storehouses. They amassed uh, all kinds of treasures uh, in using their power and their wealth uh, to separate other people from uh, their wealth. And God didn't like it. And the short measure uh, that is an abomination. And so they had measures here. For instance, if you went to a shop and you wanted to buy a certain measure of grain, they would have a basket that might be six gallons worth of grain, and they'd pull it out, they'd fill it up, scoot it across the top, then pour it into your bag, and you would take it at home. But what they did is they developed uh, a, a basket that looked like it was the size of six gallons, but it was really five and a half gallons. So every time they sold one of these, they made a half a gallon of gra grain. They were shortchanging the customer shortchanging the poor 
from their hard-earned money. And, uh, and, and so this was one of the ways that the merchants were becoming wealthy. And God said, you're not getting away with it. I'm, I'm watching uh, this kind of thing. And, uh, m images come into my mind related to um, uh, how the, the packaging remains the same. Uh, today, so often if you get a snack or something like that, I mean, maybe a Twinkie, uh, and uh, God forbid you'll live forever if you eat Twinkies, because they'll live forever. Uh, but uh, but they, the packages stay the same, and then they get smaller and smaller. So they're both about the size of, of an eye, you know, the hostess cupcake, and, uh, and, and so this whole charging the same amount, getting so much less. And shall I count pure? Pure, those with the wicked scales and with a bag uh, of deceitful weights. And so they had weights that they used for buying a grain from the wholesaler, weights that they used then when they sold the grain to their customers uh, in order to gain an, an advantage and rip people off. For her rich people are uh, full of violence. The wealthy were uh, violent and not above using violence in order to uh, gain their wealth and protect their wealth. Her inhabitants have uh, spoken lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. And so lying had just become dominant within the culture. Uh, lying was more dominant uh, than people telling the truth. And so the Lord says, therefore, now here comes the judgment that results from this kind of thing. Therefore, I will also make you sick by, uh, by striking you by making you desolate because of your sins. And so he said, I'm going to strike you with disease in order to get your attention, in order to uh, humble you. Remember, he's not talking to pagans here. He's talking to his people in a relationship with him. And, uh, and they are, when, the, when a pagan sins, and I use the term affectionately, a non-Christian they don't, have, they don't claim to be representing God in the world. There's no real... The only damage to anyone's reputation that they do is damage to their own reputation. But when a child of God sins, then God's reputation gets dragged into it. And so God said, I'm going to judge you with sickness. And then in verse 14, you shall eat and not be satisfied Hunger shall be in your midst. And so they'd experience hunger. No, they would get food, but it wouldn't be enough to kind of stop that hunger that would be uh, in, in, their, uh, in their belly. So nonstop hunger would, would become their portion. And you shall carry some away, speaking of the grain and of their, their harvest, but you shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I will give over to the sword. And so as happened, they would bring in their crops, they would bring in the little bit that they would have, and then the surrounding pagan nations would come in and steal everything that they had, uh, had harvested before uh, they had a chance to eat it. All a part of God's judgment. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread the olives, but not anoint yourself with oil and make sweet wine, but not drink of it. You'll put in all the labor you normally would for these pleasures in life, these necessities in life, but somebody else is going to uh, come in and take it from you. For the statutes of uh, Omri are kept, and the, words, uh, uh, and the works of Ahab's house 
are done. You walk in their counsels that I may make you a desolation. Uh, Omri and Ahab were the two single worst kings that the northern kingdom of Israel ever had, and they were following in uh, the works and in uh, the teachings of these two uh, kings. And this was the problem, uh, uh, the reason the judgment was coming. And your inhabitants are a hissing, therefore you shall bear the reproach uh, of my people. And so the day would come in which they would fall to the Assyrians, the southern kingdom of Judah would fall to the Babylonians, and rather than uh, the surrounding nations or surrounding people saying, oh, isn't that awful and, and regretting it, uh, they, uh, uh, the surrounding nations and the inhabitants around them and even the righteous among, uh, uh, among uh, God's people, uh, they would give a hissing. It would be, uh, it, it would, it, it would, um, it was, it was like a way of communicating what a shame it is that's happened. Not that, boy, I wish it didn't happen. That sure was a shame. But their conduct was so shameful uh, that, uh, and uh, what's sad is, is that they continued in that shameful conduct until God had to judge them in this way. So shame is a, power, a powerful deterrent to sin. And, uh, and, uh, and, and this, this shame would be what would be, uh, nobody would feel sorry for them. Uh, they would look at it and say they got what they deserved. And any time a nation or a group of people engages themselves, entrenches themselves, especially in God's, among God's people into this kind of sin, when the judgment ultimately comes, people never say, that's too, uh, boy, that's too bad that happened. It's always, that's a shame that that happened because it was so unnecessary that God had to raise the stakes in this way in order to get uh, their attention. And then we get into uh, chapter uh, 7 as Micah uh, laments the, the widespread corruption of the nation. He says, Woe is me, as he speaks about himself, for I am like those who gather uh, uh, summer fruits, like those who glean vintage uh, grapes. There is no cluster to eat of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires. The faithful man has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among them. And so, uh, some of you work in, in ag in terms of bringing in harvests and these kind of things. I remember when I, um, when I was a kid, uh, one of the jobs you could get to, to earn some money for school clothes was to, um, in Napa at that time, was to pick prunes. You know, 35 cents a bucket, and at the end of August you could buy your school clothes before school uh, started and they would always go through with the shaker and they would shake the, th the trees three times and uh, and the third time would be the smallest amount that would come off because it already the, the fruit had already been shaken twice uh, on that and here is uh, here is Micah. He's going through the, these, looking for summer fruits. He's looking for uh, vintage grapes, something that is left, and the, the, the vineyard and the orchards are completely stripped. But he's not talking about fruit here. He's talking about the nation has been stripped of its righteous men, uh, its righteous people. He said, the faithful man has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among them. 
And that's the catastrophe related to a nation or, or a people. Uh, as catastrophic as it is for there to be food shortages or these kind of things, the greatest catastrophe is for uh, the culture or the situation, what's rewarded and what isn't rewarded within the culture causes the faithful man to perish from the earth, for them to become uh, the small uh, minority. And that's what he's describing here. And then in terms of the unrighteous, only the wicked are left. Uh, they all lie in wait for blood. Every man hunts his brother uh, with a net. We're talking about Jews against Jews. I mean, it's really heartless. Uh, that, they should, uh, that they may successfully do, do evil with both hands. And so everybody's engaged, not with one hand, but you know, zealously, earnestly with both hands in committing sin and, and acts of violence and, and uh, uh, ripping people off in order to enrich themselves. The prince, he asks for uh, gifts. Now the responsibility of a prince or a ruler is to... Uh, meet out righteousness based upon uh, his or her own salary, not uh, to be uh, bribe-proof. And yet, here at this time, the prince uh, ruled, but it wasn't enough to say, I am satisfied that and my reward will be that righteousness reigns in this decision or in this nation. No, righteousness is not the great concern to me, but who can grease my palms with bribes? The judge also seeks a, a bribe. His concern is not with justice, and, uh, but uh, with who can pay me off, how can I get rich by this position? And the great man uh, utters his evil desire, and so they scheme together. And so the rich man is the one who is able to pay the gift to the prince, pay the bribe to the judge, and so uh, might makes right. Wealth makes right within the culture. And they were the ones that were getting whatever they wanted because they were able to pay off uh, the, the, the leaders in these uh, positions of, uh, uh, that ought to have been meeting out righteousness and, and justice. And here's a situation where um, the sin, the corruption, the wrongdoing has become so systemic within, uh, within uh, the, a nation or within that nation, the southern kingdom of Judah, that the only way it could be eradicated was for some kind of monumental judgment of God or some kind of a revolution. We see it in world history where we see things get so degraded within a culture, become so corrupt that ultimately it takes a revolution in that country in order to, uh, and all the devastation of it so often, to erase the marker board and start all over again because redeeming this thing is impossible. It, it's, it's hopeless in terms of, uh, of how corrupt it has has uh, become. And so the Lord looks at the southern kingdom of Judah, northern kingdom of Israel, and He says that, that uh, wickedness, evil, corruption has become so systemic that it will not be eradicated unless I displace both populations out of the land, taking one into Assyria and the other one into Babylon so I can erase the Etch-a-Sketch and begin all over again. Uh, and and that's, that's what he's talking about 
uh, here and what would be required. The best of them, talking about these judges and these, uh, the great man and, and the prince, the best of them is like a briar. The most upright is sharper than uh, a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes, and now shall be their uh, perplexity. In other words, God says His judgment will come upon them as a surprise. Not because He didn't tell them, but because they didn't listen. Now, I don't know the last time that you ever uh, uh, got into a wrestling match uh, with a briar patch uh, or, or, or with uh, thorn hedges, but you're going to lose. And, uh, and to fall into it means you're going to get cut up, you're going to get hurt, and the more you engage in that, that, uh, those briars, uh, the more you're going to get hurt. And this is a, a poetic way of, of God saying through Micah that to come into contact with these judges, to come into contact uh, with th- these princes and these uh, great men, all it ever did was do damage uh, to people. And then things would get so bad, not just on a, um, a judicial level within, within the two kingdoms, but now the, uh, the corruption within the culture becomes so great that now uh, the relationships, there's no relationships that you can uh, feel are safe. Uh, everybody looking out for themselves, looking to get ahead, uh, even at the expense not only of money, but it, it betraying others. And so he said, do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies at your bosom. Speaking of your wife, don't even tell her what you're, uh, what you're thinking about. For son dishonors father. Daughter rises up against her mother. Mother-in-law uh, against her uh, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies uh, are the men of his own uh, household and so uh, this uh, passage where um, the righteous is there in the middle of this wickedness in the middle of all of this decline um, they can't speak out about boy this is terrible and and and, I, and so-and-so is doing this now, and the righteous thing to do would be here, and this breaks my heart, and this hears my, uh, hurts my heart, because if they said it uh, to the wrong person, and the wrong person could be your spouse, could be your best friend, could be your son, could be your daughter, your son-in-law, your daughter-in-law, and then get turned in and, uh, for uh, having spoken for righteousness sake. So he's basically saying that the days are coming here for the northern and southern kingdom that the uh, righteous, a righteous remnant who is living in the midst of this mess will not be able to speak their minds. Otherwise, it'll bring uh, ramifications upon them. The wicked will be able to speak anything they want without any ramifications at all. But it'll be the righteous that will have to go silent and be careful who they uh, speak their righteousness to. And Jesus uh, quoted this passage uh, in, in His teaching talking about the righteous Christians at the end of the age or when Christians become a righteous remnant within 
a nation. And he spoke about the fact of being careful who you say, what you say uh, uh, things to, because the persecution against the righteous will be, will be str- so strong that it will uh, put you uh, in danger. So you, have, you think, about, um, think about the emotional and mental cost of this. So we're in the middle of this pandemic. I hope we're not in the middle of it. Let's hope we're at the end of it. But um, two years and counting. And we look at the price that children have paid uh, for, uh, for the isolation that has occurred in terms of, of public education and not being able to get into classes and, and all of these things. And they're talking about <clears throat> the, the, the scores. They're just... It will take years for these students to recover, uh, uh, by and large, from the eight ball that they've been uh, put behind uh, on all of this. And then, and then the great price that's being paid in terms of loneliness. And we're, we are social creatures, and uh, children very much so, and in need of in, engaging with one another. And you take that away from them, and the mental health issues, the emotional issues that uh, come to pass. Here is a culture uh, that has become uh, so debased that people uh, move into a, a self-willed isolation uh, in, in their lives, not being able to trust anyone. And, and you can imagine uh, what would happen to people emotionally and mentally uh, living under the weight of that kind of, of evil. And so then speaking, uh, Micah does here, uh, for a godly uh, remnant uh, in the midst of this kind of a mess that's, that's being described, uh, Micah declares, therefore, I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the Lord of my salvation, and my God will hear me. So, Micah recognized, and he speaks on behalf of the righteous within the northern and southern kingdom because he recognized that they recognized it as uh, well. That the problems have become so great now in the northern and southern kingdom that the only solution is God. The only solution to these problems is God stepping in and fixing these problems. Man is not going to fix these, these problems. And so that's the recognition, that the light that goes on for the righteous. I will look to the Lord. And there comes that point, and maybe you've kind of experienced it a little bit in your own life. There's a lot of bad things, a lot of ungodly things. There's a an ungodly concentration of power within our country and ungodly decisions being uh, made. And for the righteous person to look at the decline that follows these kind of decisions, you look at it and you say, this is so unnecessary. And, and if you're like me, you fume and you fret and you say, why do we have to throw all of this away in one generation? Anybody can see where this uh, leads. And I fume and I, f- uh, and I fret because I'm still convinced that the solution lies in man. And then something happens within a nation where you look at the problems. Somebody comes into office and exposes the swamp. 
and exposes the swamp as being involving both parties. And how much of it is about money? How much of it is about power and not righteousness and not serving the population? And how many people are at the trough and they're never going to walk away from that trough, not from the jobs that they're making so much uh, money on? And then you look at it and the light suddenly goes on and then I realize that this is never, man is never going to turn this thing around. The only hope is in God. And that's the point that the righteous remnant comes to here in terms of, uh, uh, of Micah representing them. I will look to the Lord. Our problems are so big and such a mess, talking about the world as a whole, that I will look to the Lord. And this is not like, oh, I'm, I'm giving up. It's come to this. I've, I've got to trust God related to all of this. This is, this is strength. Uh, this is confidence. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. And it's a confident expectation. And and here is the person that looks, and they've kind of got their mind around things that these problems are so big, only a revival can fix these things in our nation or in the world. And I will wait for the God of my salvation. I will wait to see what He does. Now, as miserable as this can be for the righteous to become a smaller and smaller remnant and the unrighteous become a greater and greater proportion of the population, one of the things that happens, and it happens here in the heart of the righteous here, is this excitement of, I wonder what God is going to do. He's going to do His thing. He's going to win in all of this. And His plans are are going to be accomplished and now to look with that confident expectation I can't wait to see what uh, the God of my salvation is going to do in this situation uh, even though it may be hard and, and, and confident in the fact that my God will hear me and do not rejoice over me uh, my enemy and, and uh, here uh, Micah talks about uh, speaks then to the enemies of Israel that uh, rejoiced over her fall uh, to the Assyrians and ultimately to the Babylonians. And so he warns the enemies of Israel, do not rejoice over me, over my, uh, o- over my fall, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. And that's the chastening that God does. And th- that recognition, I deserve the spanking I'm going to get in Babylon and Assyria. But God is not done with us just because He spanks us. I will arise, and when I sit in darkness, the Lord will then be a light to me. I'll appreciate His light, but I'll have to be in darkness before I do. I will bear the indignation uh, of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my case and executes judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I will see His righteousness. And so here is the day coming where Micah sees that uh, the Jewish people will confess their sin to God in their Babylonian captivity, and they will confess their sin, ask for forgiveness, desire to be restored to the relationship that they once had uh, with God, and that when God's people do that, they do it with the confidence that He will restore And then she who is my enemy 
will see, the enemies of Israel will see this restoration, and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? My uh, eyes uh, will see her, and now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets, speaking of, of the enemies. And so here the, the enemies of the children of Israel, once the children of Israel were taken into captivity, they were saying, you've blown it. You've gone too far. You, can't, you, you, have, you have no hope of coming back to God and expecting God to receive uh, you at all. No God is that gracious. No God is that long-suffering. And uh, and that was what they were being uh, taunted with, but they didn't know the God of the Bible. Uh, Who is that long-suffering? And He is that uh, that forgiving. If any of us are backslidden tonight, there's that recognition that God, with repentance of sin, with the confession of sin, He will uh, end the chastening and He will bring us back into uh, the intimate relationship with Him that we want. In, in the day when your walls uh, are to be built, in that day the decree will go far and wide. And in that day uh, they shall come to you from Assyria and the fortified cities, from the fortress uh, to the river, from sea to sea, and mountain to uh, mountain. And so here is uh, Micah speaking of the, uh, of the future of Israel when they would return from their Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, be restored back into, uh, into uh, to, uh, the, <clears throat> the land that they had been uh, dispossessed. Verses 11 and 12 were uh, partially fulfilled in the return of, of the children of Israel. Uh, from Babylon, but it's ultimately going to be filled in, fulfilled in its ultimate sense during the kingdom age of the thousand-year reign of Christ, where the borders of Israel are described elsewhere in the Old Testament as uh, stretching from uh, Assyria to the fortified cities of Egypt, as they're, they're described uh, here. Uh, yet the land, that's not going to happen yet, uh, yet the land shall be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit uh, of, of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff. Micah's prayer to God to shepherd uh, Israel once again in their uh, repentant uh, condition. A staff was a, a, a means of guidance for a, a, a shepherd. And so lead your people with your guidance once again. The flock of your uh, heritage who dwells solitarily in the woodland. For a flock to be to dwell solitarily in the woodland um, means you're going to be eaten by predators. It's a vulnerable place uh, to be in. And so here in this place of vulnerability for the children of Israel, God comes in, Micah comes in and he prays that in the vulnerability of their, their very existence continuing, that you would come in and that you would uh, protect them. And uh, in the midst of Carmel, let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. And so restore them to this fertile land that was once theirs. As in the days when you came out of the land uh, of Egypt, I will show them wonders. And the nation shall see and be ashamed of uh, all their might, and they shall put their hand over their mouths, their ears 
uh, shall be death. And so the Lord gives Micah the response to his prayer, I will shepherd the children of Israel once again in their repentance. I will take that place in their life again. And uh, I will show them uh, a wonder that is comparable to the wonder of delivering them uh, out of, uh, out of uh, Egypt and all the miracles that were involved in that. And as you stop and think about it, the fact that the children of Israel ever got out of that Babylonian captivity was as great a miracle as them being delivered out of Egypt. If God didn't do it, uh, they were not going to, to, to get out of that, that Babylonian captivity and they would have been absorbed by the populations of the world. And they shall, speaking of Israel's enemies, they shall lick the dust like a serpent. Have you ever gotten a wrestling match as a junior high boy and somebody made you lick the dust or you made them lick the dust? It's about as low as you can go. And uh, they're going to lick the dust. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. And they shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall uh, fear uh, because of you. And then Micah closes with this beautiful, beautiful praise, beautiful doxology. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? Every one of us could sing that praise to God. I mean, when all of us, and we know the Lord ultimately, He's the one that brought us to Him. I mean, it's the wooing, the pulling, the drawing of the Holy Spirit. But in that search that we had for what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? What is this all about? And then coming to the end of our search as the Holy Spirit brings us uh, to salvation that is found in Christ and entering into a relationship uh, with God. And then the God that we discover at the, end of that, at the end of that search, one who will forgive every one of my sins. You don't know every one of my sins. No one but God knows every one of my sins. And if I knew every one of your sins, and you knew every one of my sins, we would marvel at the greatness of God's forgiveness of us. In the ancient world, you had no hope of finding a God who was even remotely close to the God of the Bible for forgiveness. The gods of the Greeks, the gods of the Romans, the gods of the, the Babylonians, the gods of the Assyrians, these were not forgiving gods. These were not gods you could be confident of their forgiveness. You just woke up every day hoping they didn't you know, rub you out like a cigarette butt every day. They were always pretty grumpy. And then yet this God that, that we have uh, 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 that is just a marvel. And, and, and Micah's description here is, is like every description of God in the Bible. And that is that He is the description of a sinner Savior. This is exactly the God we needed God to be in our lives. And He is a God who pardons iniquity and crookedness and then passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage. God said He would forgive His people and He would restore them. And, and Micah goes into just praise over this. The word transgression speaks of sin that is deliberate. It's not 
uh, it's not, well, I tried as hard as I could in that situation, and I didn't quite hit the mark. This is, I know better than to do what it is that I'm doing here. I was raised better. I was raised in the church. I'm going to do this. And, and, the, and the great question would be in the ancient world and in the modern world, what God would forgive those kind of sins that we went and we did deliberately knowing better. And the God of the Bible is. And He does it as we confess our sin and then repent of that sin. And He continues the descri- description, He do, who does not retain His anger forever, uh, but uh, because He delights in mercy. Think about the mercy. We already sang about it here tonight. It's new every morning for us. A fresh batch of mercy. No matter how bad I've blown it on a given day or whatever it might be, I wake up with God and I've got a fresh start, a fresh batch uh, of mercy uh, from Him. And, and this, is, this is unique to the God uh, of the Bible. And He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You have cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And so He not only forgives us, but He separates our sins from us. Well, Corey Ten Boom is famous for quoting this verse in terms of forgiveness, that He casts our sins uh, into the depths of the sea, and then He puts a, a no fishing sign out there. And, uh, and that's very, very good. We don't have to go dig through any of that. He separates our sin as far as the east is um, from the west. And Micah is talking about this in an Old Testament context. Not in terms of our sin being washed away, but the best that you could get under the Old Testament was for the sin offerings to be a kofar for our sins to merely be covered. And that's what he's praising God for, is that God takes and He covers our sin so they're not in His sight or my sight anymore, so I don't have to live in condemnation over it anymore. But in the new covenant that we have in Christ, He doesn't merely cover our sins, He washes our sins away. Uh, that's how complete the forgiveness uh, is. And then he closes here with another great blessing and, and cause for praise in terms of God. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. And so the, we, the, the God that we serve is the God of truth. He is the God who keeps His promises to His people. And here Micah is talking about how God gave truth. His promises are truth. He gave truth to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What truth did He give to each one of those three patriarchs? Every one of them identical. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and I will make you a blessing among all of the nations of the world speaking of the fact that He would bring the Messiah, bring Jesus into the world through that bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and, uh, and uh, Jacob. And so the, the beautiful, beautiful promise of God's faithfulness uh, to us and His faithfulness uh, uh, in, in His 
his salvation and uh, and speaking here in terms of his faithfulness to his promises especially in the context uh, of of the Messiah and so we finish the book of Micah uh, here this evening and and uh, with the realization that um, things are not always going to be the way they are on planet earth they just aren't things are they going to get better they're going to get worse listen uh, we know they're going to get worse over the long haul but in our generation or what I, we don't know what's going to happen it's trending badly uh, currently and, and and so all of the all of this oppression all of this corruption all of this uh, this nonsense, all of this destruction of personal uh, relationships and all, it's going to one day come to an end and the Lord is going to return and He's going to establish His kingdom. And the only hope for the world is the coming of the Lord. Is for God to step in and say, not only, it's not just the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel that is so corrupt, that it is irredeemable uh, on its own but the whole world will hit that place. And then God's people look and say, Lord, You're the only one that can fix uh, this mess. And, and, and He will. So what do we do in the meantime if we count ourselves among a godly remnant in the middle of a world that is making things hard for a godly remnant to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God and then trust God to make much of that for His glory in whatever context He's called us to live those things uh, out. If you sit here this, uh, this evening and you're in a backslidden state, tonight under the weight of the book of Micah is a call to repent. But it is also the reassurance that if you will repent and return to God, He will be forgiving. He will be gracious. He will be merciful. He will restore you. You don't have to uh, wonder uh, about that. And if you sit here this evening and you are not yet uh, a, a Christian, the importance of realizing that, that you need to take and give your life to Jesus Christ. Trust in Him for the forgiveness of your sins. You wouldn't be in a church on a Sunday night uh, and, and, less, and unsaved unless you're looking at the world and saying, uh, I think we're in real trouble. I better find out a little bit about God. And the first thing that we need to find out about God is how to enter into a relationship with Him. And that's by trusting in the Savior that He sent to us in Jesus. And if you'd like to do that tonight, we'll be up in front after the service and we'd love to pray uh, with you to do that. If you need prayer for anything this evening, we'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together and I'll close. And, and then just so you know that after our service this evening, we're going to have Costco cakes out uh, in the fellowship hall to eat. It's a tradition when we, when, uh, when we finish a, a book of the Bible, we like to celebrate uh, by what, how we've done it for 35 years, Costco cakes, and um, uh, pray over them. Uh, no deadly poison, uh, but, it's, uh, but we're going to do that. And we had, I, I asked Pastor Bob, when's the last time we did that? You can't do it through the minor prophets. We'd all gain 400 pounds. And, and, and so we, but we haven't done it since Hosea. 
And so it was time to do that. So enjoy the fellowship and the Costco cake after the service. Thank you, Father, for um, the God that you are. Thank you that you do chasten, and we mean that. We are grateful that you don't let us go into sin and into iniquity and, and uh, into lawlessness, but you chasten us and you bring us back to you. And we thank you for a love that is big enough to do that. We thank you tonight for your faithfulness. We cannot find, and in and, and all of the searching of all of our lives, I don't know how many hundreds of years are represented in this room, Lord, but you've been nothing but faithful to us and faithful to your word. We could not bring a single charge against you. And we thank you for the privilege of knowing you as our God. And we thank you in the name of the one who makes that possible. In Jesus' name, amen.